Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 29, The Louisiana Purchase and the Cadudal Affair. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope we're enjoying a great start to the summer or winter to our listeners in the Southern Hemisphere. We're slowly nearing the year mark of when we launched this podcast, and as we begin to now embark on the age of Napoleon, I did want to mention that in two months' time, we'll be doing something special for our one-year anniversary, because Really, just over 10 months ago, we introduced an awkward young Corsican boy into the world as he tried to navigate his national identity. And now, nearly 30 episodes later, he's on the precipice of becoming emperor of the French and one of the most powerful men the world will ever know. But before we fully embark on the age of Napoleon, as well as his long-awaited crowning as emperor, we need to take care of two critical events that would help shape the next decade-plus in Europe, as well as the destiny of the United States, the Louisiana Purchase, and the Cadillac Affair. So yes, it is finally time to break out America's merry old men of Robert Livingston, Thomas Jefferson, and James Monroe, just in time for the 4th of July here in the States, by the way, and talk about the Louisiana Purchase, a treaty which would define the United States for the rest of, well, her entire existence, 247 years old as of tomorrow, July 4th, 2023. First off, though, we need to pick up where we left off in last week's episode, and that was May of 1803. Britain had pulled out of Amiens and declared war on France, seizing her ships in English ports, and the French, in return, arrested any military-age Englishmen inside her borders as she geared up for battle. And you would think that these two had been chomping at the bit to go back to war, and spoiler alert, we already know that they were, because after the May 18th declaration of war on France by Britain, events began to spiral rapidly from there. Napoleon responded almost immediately by ordering the invasion of Hanover, the ancestral home of British King George III, as well as ordering his men to cut down trees for building ships that would then be used in a future invasion of Britain. Now, it was obviously done both for show and propaganda, but haven't we come to learn by now that Napoleon was every bit the showman as he was the military genius? Now, the British, meanwhile, were answered by blocking the mouths of the Elbe and Vesser rivers, and Admiral Nelson was ordered to Toulon to close her ports off to the Mediterranean markets. Now, by September of that year, Britain had retaken the Caribbean colonies, and Napoleon ordered fortifications put up in northern Italy, which infuriated Russia and also sent shivers down the spines of Central Europe because the event that they were to be drawn back into hostilities was now becoming very, very real. And, well, spoiler alert, those fears were not unfounded. But not quite yet. And... To be fair, that's why we don't say the War of the Third Coalition started when Britain declared war in 1803, but rather when she helped put together the, well, Third Coalition two years later, and thus it starts in earnest in 1805. 
But again, Britain and France had been at war technically for the previous two years. So, well, don't you just love French revolutionary history? Anyway, at the start of June, Napoleon issued orders to begin the construction of five large camps at Brest, Boulogne, Montreal, Bruges, and Utrecht. Now, these camps would be used to train his armies for a future invasion of the British Isles. And Napoleon himself was stationed there, even quipping to his subordinates how easy it was to measure the distance from themselves to the British mainland. Now, these camps would come to absorb units from across France as well as much of the Rhineland. And by the fall of 1803, their numbers swelled to over 70,000 men. And by March of 1804, they were over 120,000. Now, these camps would come to be known as l'Armée des Côtes de l'Océan, literally the Army of the Ocean Coast, and they would be the foundation of what would become one of the greatest fighting forces in the history of modern warfare, the Grande Armée. Now, it's pretty safe to assume that Napoleon was dead serious in his invasion plan. I mean, look, you don't gather over 100,000 men near the French and Dutch coasts just to have a massive beach party. But Napoleon would later claim that he only devised the plan as a ruse to scare Britain and lull Austria and Prussia into false senses of security, but we can all assume that this was just pure bluster, as well as some later sentiments while he was in exile. There were detailed battle plans drawn up down to the very beachheads and battalion assignments for the landing. And indeed, Napoleon even admonished one of his future marshals, Nicolas Jean de Dieu Soult, for saying that launching an invasion in a day would be impossible. Quote, impossible, sir. I am not acquainted with that word. It is not in the French language. Erase it from your dictionary. Now look, obviously the invasion would never take place, but for the men in those cabinet meetings, it was seen as critical to France's destiny for securing continental as well as global domination. The problem was, around this same time, Napoleon was still dealing with the faltering Leclerc expedition, and, as a result, his inability to reestablish a French empire in the Americas save for a substantial plot of land on the American continent, which he had been given from Spain in the secret third treaty of San Ildefonso. Oh, we didn't mention that treaty earlier in the podcast? Well, that's mostly because it gets overshadowed and reconfirmed by the Treaty of Aranjuez in 1801. But basically, Spain ceded most of her North American territories to France in exchange for territories in Tuscany. Yes, you heard that correctly. Spain traded land which would ultimately become the states of Arkansas, Iowa, Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Minnesota, Louisiana, duh, New Mexico, Texas, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, and Colorado for a part of Tuscany. Now look, to Spain's credit, they didn't know the exact borders or extent as to what they were really giving up, and neither would the French, as we'll see in a second, because, well, European cartographers weren't exactly Google Maps of North America in the 18th century. But on the other side of the token, you can't be that blind to think that such a large tract of land like that would be completely useless, right? Well, obviously it wouldn't be, but both Spain and France didn't know that. And now that its territory was in France's possession, Napoleon needed to figure out what to do with it. Because you see, in Napoleon's mind, as large a tract of land as the Louisiana Territory was, it was sparsely populated, and those who did live there, mostly American Indian tribes and fur traders, were, well, not exactly the people the French saw as civilized. So, 
With his most lucrative anchor, Saint-Domingue, likely to fall to the Haitian revolutionaries any day now, Napoleon decided that he could accomplish three major policy goals by leaving America altogether. One, and perhaps most importantly, he wanted to avert any potential conflict with the United States, especially since their current president, Thomas Jefferson, was a known Francophile and was intent on staying neutral in any war between Britain and France. Two, other than New Orleans, Napoleon saw the territory as essentially worthless, and thus figured he could sell high after buying low to begin with. And oh, by the way, the Treaty of San Ildefonso, it did stipulate that France was not to sell the territory to a third party. But as we've come to see, treaties to Napoleon were basically guidelines. So he just, well, simply ignored that provision. And then three, by selling off the territory, he could redirect his resources back to the European mainland and double his efforts on his invasion of Britain, and now with more cash, and also a potential future ally in the United States. And indeed, in less than 10 years, the United States would be at war with Britain, not France, during the War of 1812. But we know now that the Louisiana Purchase was a massive folly for the French and an immeasurable boon for the United States in her future expansion. Indeed, one of the principal diplomats in the negotiations, James Monroe, was the architect of Manifest Destiny, and the Louisiana Purchase can be seen as a major reason for his policy-making during his presidency less than 15 years later. So let's talk about those negotiations, heated as they were, and the immediate and long-term ramifications after the signing of the Louisiana Treaty. While San Ildefonso went relatively unnoticed after its signing in 1800, when Napoleon launched his Leclerc expedition in 1801, it aroused fears amongst the Americans that the French might be eyeing a larger territorial expansion onto the continent, which, had he been successful in retaking Saint-Domingue, was a very real possibility. So negotiations within the United States were also tense, with Alexander Hamilton's Federalists using the entire episode as a reason for declaring war on France and believing Jefferson was being too weak in the face of the crisis. Now Jefferson, on the other hand, preached moderation, but this only angered the Federalists more. And while Jefferson flouted the idea of an alliance with Britain, something the Federalists likely wanted anyway, the relations between the two countries were still, how shall I put it, raw. But Jefferson was keen on finding a way to establish a foothold at the mouth of the Mississippi River via New Orleans. And so he sent Livingston to Paris in 1801 to begin talks of a potential purchase of the city. Now, by 1803, when it became clear that Saint-Domingue was lost and that war with Britain would resume, Napoleon was more amenable to the idea of selling the territory. A French nobleman who had been living in the United States, Pierre-Samuel Dupont de Numer, began back-channel negotiations on Jefferson's behalf with Napoleon and floated the idea of a larger purchase of the entire territory of the United States. All the while, though, Jefferson had intelligence gathered on Napoleon's potential attack plans in North America, and he also sent James Monroe to Paris to help negotiate the settlement with strict orders that he also go to London should talks break down in Paris to form an alliance with the British. Ah, the good old American backdoor deals. A tale as old as time, really. But I digress. As we mentioned, with the situation of Saint-Domingue now lost and with war with Britain all but assured, Napoleon decided to sell the territory he hardly knew. 
completely unaware that the lands he would soon sell to the United States would contain some of the most fertile soils on Earth and access to one of the world's most important shipping waterways in the Mississippi River, he told his finance minister, François Barbet Marbois, to propose an offer to Livingston to sell the entire Louisiana Territory to the United States for $15 million, about three cents per acre. Now, this amount would be around $340 million in 2023, or about 65-ish cents per acre, but that, too, is an astoundingly small sum. What's perhaps even more astounding is that the United States, unbeknownst to Napoleon, were prepared to offer only $10 million for New Orleans alone, which, to be fair, was the real prize in 1803 prior to the mass migrations out west, but hey, we'll get to that a little bit later. But when Livingston heard Napoleon's offer, he was sure that the United States would not turn it down. And indeed, many back in the States were worried that Napoleon would pull the offer at any time, given his, well, predisposition to such tax. And thus, they agreed to the offer and signed the Louisiana Purchase Treaty on April 30th, 1803, just shy of three weeks before Britain declared war on France. Marbois signed the treaty for France, while Livingston and Monroe signed on behalf of the United States. With a stroke of a pen, France had given the United States nearly double the land she had had prior to the treaty and fundamentally changed the course of her history. Livingston, likely still astonished at how he was able to pull off such a coup, famously remarked after the treaty was signed that, quote, We have lived long, but this is the noblest work of our whole lives. From this day, the United States takes their place amongst the powers of first rank. Now, while this podcast is about Napoleon and not about the history of the United States, there are certainly plenty of podcasts to discuss that topic, I'll leave the signing of the Louisiana Purchase with this. While it was largely met with apathy back in France, the signing of the treaty was extremely divisive in the United States. Many Federalists accused Jefferson of hypocrisy for skirting the Constitution and using his personal authority to instruct Madison and Livingston to sign the document. Remember, folks, Jefferson was anti-strong executive, remember? But, hey, show me a politician who isn't a hypocrite, and I'll show you a lying politician, or rather, just a politician. But I digress. We all know how important the purchase would become for the fate of the United States and for the world at large. Cities like St. Louis, New Orleans, Kansas City, and Denver would be birthed from the acquisition of the gradual population expansion westward, and that would all be possible thanks to the Louisiana Purchase. But more importantly, it kept the French out of North American affairs for the foreseeable future, and that was just fine with the French and Napoleon because they're about to have their hands full with affairs back in Europe. So let's put the Louisiana Purchase to bed and go back across the Atlantic to good old Europe. As his armies amassed along the northern French and Dutch shores, Napoleon also began to explore the idea of using the assistance of the Irish in any potential invasion of England. Now, we had floated this idea in the past, and he wanted to use their island as a base of operations and even as a place from which to launch the invasion itself. I mean, Napoleon had delusions of grandeur throughout his life, but it, it really gets serious here. He commissioned uniforms for the potential allies in Ireland, something which he apparently took to meticulous abandon. He even wrote letters to all of his admirals expressing how all they needed was a single tide to send hundreds of boats and 100,000 men to the shores of Dover to, quote, rule the universe. He sent requests to composers to write scores for the invasion as they raised the tricolor over Westminster. I mean, 
it really was the stuff of dreams. Mostly because, well, that's all they were. All of Napoleon's most capable admirals knew that any such invasion would be met with such staunch resistance that to even attempt it would be tantamount to suicide. Their impressive manpower notwithstanding, none of their modest ships could stand up to the 30 ships of the line the British boasted, many on permanent station on the English Channel, now with the war having been restarted. And even if there were favorable conditions with which to send an invasion force, i.e. favorable tides, the conditions were still dangerous enough to severely hamper any tangible success should a beachhead even be established. Basically, the best-case scenario was a Pyrrhic victory just in the landing, only to be followed by complete encirclement from the rear in the channel by Admiral Nelson and the charging British reinforcements from further inland. You see, by 1804, the Royal Army and Navy were 600,000 strong, close to 15% of the young male population in the entire country, and all of them were training specifically to kill the man they perceived, correctly so as it would turn out, as the greatest threat to their national security. And this is to say nothing of the fact that the French would have also likely faced a heavy insurgency from a well-armed public as nearly all Brits were armed in some capacity, be it firearms or otherwise. In short, he faced little chance of success even if he were to land successfully. Napoleon, again showing his complete ignorance when it came to naval warfare, had suggested finding a way to lure the entire British fleet away from the channel. But, I mean, come on, that was obviously never going to happen. Sure, Napoleon, let's find a way to trick the greatest navy on earth away from her home ports in order to stage one of the largest land invasions in human history. I'm sure they'll go for it, hook, line, and sinker. But Napoleon would take his confidence with him to his grave. While in exile on Elba over a decade later, he wrote openly of how the invasion could have easily succeeded with favorable tides landing in Kent and marching his 100,000 men, supported by artillery and cavalry, all the way to London. By his estimation, laughable as it may be, he calculated that the entire ordeal would take no more than three days believing that when Nelson received word of the invasion, he would be hampered by French flotillas in the West Indies on his return voyage to the British Isles. The reality, though, was far less glorious. Nelson likely would have been harassed by the French ships, yes, but he would have surely succeeded, and when he did arrive, he would have completely cut off French resupplies from mainland Europe. And the French would have almost certainly needed them because had the French landed on Britain, they would have been met with heavy defensive positions that were strategically positioned all over the British shores. You see, Great Britain had been weary of a French invasion plan for the previous few years, and by 1802, they had begun to prepare their defenses on the coasts. Had Napoleon gone ahead with the invasion in 1805, as his admiral said would be the earliest possible date to have had any chance of success, it likely would have still been an absolute slaughter. And speaking of those admirals, the Admiralty did try their best to dissuade Napoleon from doing something that he would regret, and they certainly let him know how impossible it would be to launch an invasion of Britain before 1805, let alone as early as 1803. But Napoleon, as we mentioned earlier, heard none of it. He was set on sending an armada into Britain and ending their long-standing rivalry once and for all. As he put it to Marshal Agarro a year later, quote, We have six centuries of insults to avenge. But while the French Admiralty was understandably skeptical, the British still needed to understand the scale of the threat that they potentially faced at home. 
And so they employed many spies as well as sympathetic French royalists to their cause, many of whom just so happened to be living in Britain in exile, and many of them who were eager to get a chance to kill Napoleon. Many of them were former shoe-ons from the revolutionary days, and they were still residing in Britain and were eager to help the British in taking Napoleon out of power. Royal Navy Intelligence Officer Captain John Wesley Wright landed a group of them onto the shores of Normandy in hopes of gathering intelligence of the massing of troops on the shores there, as well as to, if possible, kidnap and assassinate the First Consul. But Napoleon was keen to inspect the troops, and was also involved in nearly all intelligence operations in the area, something which he had been accustomed to doing after his assassination attempts the previous few years, and thus he had his own spies peppered throughout the region. And this leads us to one of the most famous events in the early days of the resumption of hostilities between Britain and France, and that is the Cadodal Affair. So let's take a few minutes and talk about this seemingly innocuous assassination attempt that likely led to a more united Europe against France and that ultimately led to the War of the Third Coalition. Landing on the shores of Biville, among the plotters were Georges Cadodol, a Chouan fighter during the Revolutionary War and a staunch opponent of Napoleon who he believed was doing nothing but sowing instability throughout the continent. Now, Cadodol also had personal reasons to hate Napoleon, as the first consul was responsible for the murders of his close friend, as well as his brother. And so, Cadodol had long wanted to overthrow Napoleon, and in 1803, he met with one Charles Pichigrou, who, after escaping his exile in Guyana, found refuge in London. Now, the two plotted for months about assassinating Napoleon, marching on Paris, and then seizing power with the army with Pichigrou and General Moreau heading the government. But right from the start, it was evident the plan lacked any clear vision, planning, and, above all, actors who could execute it properly. After Cadodal landed in August, Napoleon got wind of his arrival almost immediately, and he sent his police forces to monitor the men, suspicious that they were up to something, and, spoiler alert, they were, and when they did arrest one of the conspirators, he promptly hanged himself in his interrogation cell, spelling out just how serious their intentions were. But Wright and Cadudal played their cards relatively close to the vest. Wright had fought alongside Cadudal in the Chouan uprisings and was impressed with his leadership against the revolutionary forces. And so, over the next few months, they evaded police capture, eh, sort of, we'll get to that in a minute, and waited for Pichigrou's arrival in January of 1804 to pull the plot off. But here's where the twist comes in. It's almost certain that Napoleon let Cadodal run around France unhindered and waited for Pichigou's arrival so that he could implicate not just both of them, but also his long-standing rival and ultimate stick-in-the-mud, Moreau. And indeed, when Pichigou did finally arrive, Moreau was so appalled at the disorganized nature of the plan that he began to believe that Napoleon was just biding his time to get Moreau to implicate himself. Now, Moreau's involvement in the plot is controversial even to this day, because he obviously knew of the plot and its intentions, and though he wasn't a royalist, he did believe that should Napoleon die, it was possible that France would turn to the man who won Hohenlinden and became a national hero. Though, on the other side, once Moreau began to see how things were unfolding, or rather, how they weren't unfolding, he began to espouse his support for Napoleon outwardly 
telling another general that he believed Napoleon was, quote, the most ambitious soldier who ever lived, and that his rule would mean the end of all of our labors, all of these hopes, and all that glory. But unfortunately for Moreau, just knowing about the plot was enough to implicate himself, and that's exactly what Napoleon had hoped would happen. Police Chief Joseph Fouché, who, again, was just a cut above the rest, began to piece together all of the evidence of the plot once they apprehended additional inside agents. Eventually, Moreau's involvement, real or imagined, was discovered. He would be arrested in early February of 1804, while Pichagru was arrested at the end of the month and Cadudal in March. All three men were tried and convicted, with Pichagru being found dead in his jail cell by his necktie under circumstances that are still suspicious to this day. Now, Moreau was far more fortunate. He struck a deal with Napoleon, who, despite his personal hatred for him, respected his previous service for France, and thus settled on banishment to the United States, where he would spend the next 10 years before returning to Europe after the Restoration. Cadudal, however, was less fortunate, though by choice. He declined offers of leniency and refused to ask for a pardon, and he was executed in June of 1804 by the guillotine. His last words were, quote, And now... It's time to show to the Parisians how Christians, Royalists, and Bretons die. He was 33 years old and would be posthumously named a Marshal of France by King Louis XVIII after the Restoration. Now, the British involvement in this plot is really beyond any form of reasonable doubt, and it's likely they even financed the entire thing, with possible assistance coming from King Louis XVI's brother and future King Charles X, the Carme d'Artois. Now, Napoleon's reaction when he found out of the Bourbons' involvement created one of the most infamous moments in the early start of the hostilities between Britain and France, and that was the supposed involvement of Louis-Antoine Duc d'Anguin. His subsequent capture, as well as his death, created shockwaves throughout Europe and laid the groundwork for the subsequent alignment of nations into forming the Third Coalition. So, with that said, let's take a minute and talk about Louis-Antoine the Duc d'Anguin. Louis-Antoine Dutonnier was born on August 2nd, 1772, so he was almost exactly three years younger than Napoleon. A member of the House of Bourbon and a direct descendant of King Louis XIII, as well as nephew of the Duc d'Orléans, better known as Philippe Galité, and thus he was a first cousin to the future, as well as final, French King Louis-Philippe. Did we all get that? During the outbreak of the French Revolution, Anyen commanded an army of emigres under his grandfather, Louis-Joseph, the Prince de Condé, who led the troops against revolutionary forces at Valmy. After their defeat, and with the Peace of Lunaville signed, Anyen took up residence at Ettenheim in the Margraviate of Baden, but we'll just call it a duchy for simplicity. Now, while Anyen was in exile, Napoleon heard through the grapevine that he had been involved in the Cotidal Affair, due to his supposed association with General Charles de Maurier, who we'll remember defected from the revolutionary forces and then joined the Austrian army. Now, as the rumor went, Anyen made secret journeys to France and then engaged in meetings with both Pichegru and Cardinal, and then was complicit in their plot to assassinate and then overthrow Napoleon. He also allegedly hosted de Maurier at his residence in Ettenheim, where they planned much of the plot. Now, when Fouché had made his arrests of the secret agents, they all described a man matching the physical description of Anyen, 
And thus, it was a logical conclusion that he was implicated in the plot, as well as one of its main actors. In reality, however, there has been no substantial evidence presented proving that Anyan had ever returned to France, as he had been convicted in absentia from his involvement in the émigré armies. Nevertheless, when Napoleon heard that Anyan might have been an accomplice, he protested and famously shouted out, quote, What? You do not tell me that the Duc d'Anguin was only four leagues, or 12 miles, from my frontier? Am I a dog to be killed in the streets? Are my murderers sacred beings? Why was I not warned that they are assembling at Ettenheim? My very person is attacked. It is time that I give back blow for blow. The head of the most guilty amongst them must atone for this. Now, Fouché, as well as Talihan, because, you know, of course... Both convinced Napoleon that Anyen was behind the plot and that in order to stop it, he needed to be dealt with severely. After Cadudal's arrest, Napoleon held a closed door meeting at the Tuileries with Talleyrand, Fouché, Camasares, Lebrun, and Renier, and they all agreed to cross the border into the Holy Roman Empire and capture Anyen. Now, Napoleon would later write that it was Talleyrand who ultimately persuaded him to take the action, but I'm sure there is little doubt Napoleon had any issue with this course of action. He would later write that the attempt was, quote, getting beyond a joke. Coming from Ettenheim to Paris to organize an assassination and to believe oneself safe because one is behind the Rhine, I would be too stupid if I were to allow it. Napoleon then left for Malmaison as he sent his men to carry out the plot. At 5 a.m. on March 15, 1804, French dragoons surrounded Anyen's house and seized him, his dog, his papers, and 2.3 million francs that had been stored in the home and took him covertly to Strasbourg in the Alsace. De Maurier was nowhere to be found, and unfortunately for Anyen, as it would turn out, the only association the two had with one another was due to a misunderstanding by the French investigators. You, unfortunately, hate to see that. Now, the French sent a note from Talleyrand to the Duke of Baden explaining their breach of sovereignty while Anyen was hastily transported to the Chateau de Missin just outside of Paris for a quickly planned trial. Napoleon, still at Malmaison, told Josephine of the affair, and she apparently begged Napoleon to reconsider his plans for executing the young nobleman, either out of fear for his reputation or for her closeted royalist sympathies she still likely harbored. I mean, again, her first husband was brutally murdered during the terror, lest we forget. But I digress. Napoleon received word the following day that the papers they retrieved from Anyen's house did not reveal any complicity, or, for that matter, any planning in a plot to assassinate the first consul. However, in what likely doomed him, Anyen's papers did contain correspondences with the British, including evidence he did receive money from them, would serve with Austria should they decide to reinvade France, and that he was paying large sums of gold to emigres in exile. Some of these letters were also to the aliens office, which was the British Secret Service at the time. Now, though there was nothing that outright proved he was part of the Cotadal plot, the papers discovered did show that Anyen was ready to join in any fight against Napoleon, especially if he were to be removed from power. But Napoleon did not care one iota. What he found was sufficient evidence to give at least one massive middle finger to King Louis XVIII. Do not try to reclaim your throne, or what is about to happen to Anyin will surely happen to you. As Napoleon would later put it, quote, 
My blood, after all, was not made of mud. It was time to show that it was the equal to theirs. So, what was the fate of Onion? Well, glad you asked, and let's find out. Napoleon put Murat in charge of the court-martial, although Murat initially refused, not wanting to be ultimately responsible for the death, as he figured it would trigger a stern international backlash, which, as we're about to find out, it did. He wasn't the only one, though, as many figures involved tried their best to shift blame and responsibility from one person to another, but ultimately, the buck stopped with Napoleon, and he demanded that Murat carry out the court-martial, which he finally agreed to, albeit begrudgingly. On March 30th, Napoleon sent General Anne-Jean-Marie René Savaré to the Château de Vicenne, then the tallest building in Europe, where Anyen was being imprisoned. Savaré was to present orders to Murat to, quote, finish the business, and also delivered him a list of set questions that were to be asked to Anyen, but I won't bother you with those because the entire ordeal was nothing more than a show trial, and the verdict was known to all parties before it even began. Presiding over the court-martial was General Pierre-Augustin Houlin, probably most famous for being one of the men who captured the Bastille all those years ago in 1789, and was now the head of Napoleon's elite consular guard. At 2 a.m. on March 21st, the uh, trial began, and Anyen, to his credit, agreed that he did plan to make war against France with England, but that he had never met Pichegroup, and that he was only living in Entenheim because he enjoyed hunting there. But his admittance was obviously enough to warrant an execution. But he only did so in the hopes that his vast fortune would not be discovered by the French in further investigations. Nevertheless, he was, obviously, found guilty, dragged to the moat of the castle, shot, and then placed into a grave which had already been dug there, waiting for him. Like I said, the outcome shocked no one, and his last words were, quote, I must die at the hands of Frenchmen. And indeed, he did. That night, Napoleon dined at Malmaison to celebrate the proclamation of the Civil Code of the French, which went into effect on March 21st, 1804. Now, this Civil Code is better known today as the Napoleonic Code, and we'll talk more about that in our next episode. But it is worth noting that on a night when Napoleon celebrated one of the most influential law codes in human history, as well as one of the most celebrated, he also ordered the cold-blooded murder, I mean, let's call it what it was, of a man who most historians deem was completely innocent in a plot against his life. Again, Napoleon was nothing else if not a walking contradiction, the embodiment of the Enlightenment while ruthlessly crushing those who opposed him. But there was no contradiction in the way the rest of Europe reacted to the news. All across the continent, the major powers reacted with rage at what they had seen as a heartless act against an innocent man. Beyond the political reaction, many liberal-minded thinkers who had initially supported Napoleon now began to view him in the same way they viewed Robespierre, a bloodthirsty tyrant who would stop at nothing to maintain power. Napoleon ordered the French ambassador back from Russia, something which began the rapid deterioration of Franco-Russian relations, which would ultimately lead to war the following year. Europe, already skeptical of Napoleon's long-term ambitions, were now readying their drums as the march to war was nearing the horizon. The execution of Onion was a turning point in Napoleon's relations with the rest of Europe, 
and it began the inevitable path to what would become the War of the Third Coalition. As Fouché later stated, though the quote is often misattributed to Talleyrand, and honestly there is also debate as to whether it was said by Fouché, but we'll just say it was here for simplicity's sake, the execution of Onion was, quote, worse than a crime. It was a mistake. Indeed it was, and everyone around Napoleon could see it. It was only Napoleon who could not. And that's where we will leave it for today. Next episode, we're going to begin a series of some of the most important events in Napoleonic and European history. With war looming, Napoleon launched a campaign to make himself the most powerful man in Europe officially. Because next week, Napoleon will give France her law code, but he will also give her a referendum. A referendum to decide on whether Napoleon should or should not be Emperor of the French. <laughs>